Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now. Today in the, should I say, shed and not house is shed, Stephen Shedletsky. Hello, sir. A uh, little bio, and then we'll get into uh, some speaking up, my friend. Uh, Stephen helps leaders make it safe and worth it for people to, yes, speak up. He supports humble leaders, those who know they are both a part of the problem they experience and the solutions they create as they put their people and purpose first. A sought-after speaker, coach, and advisor, Stephen Slash Shed, has led hundreds of keynote presentations, workshops, and leadership development programs right around this globe of ours. As a thought leader on psychological safety in the workplace, he supports leaders and organizations in all industries where human beings work. We'll talk about some of the non-human beings later, Stephen. He's the author of this one fantastic book, Speak Up Culture, When Leaders Truly Listen, People Step Up. After years on a corporate track, Shed was introduced to and inspired by the work of none other than Simon Sinek, and soon after meeting him, became the fourth person to join Simon's team. For more than a decade, Shed has contributed at Simon Sinek, Inc., where, as chief of staff and head of brand experience, training, and development, he headed a global team of speakers and facilitators. Shed continues to speak and facilitate with Simon Sinek, helping to create a more inspired, safe, and fulfilled world. Stephen graduated from the Richard Ivey School of Business with a focus on leadership, communication, and strategy. He also received his coaching certification from the Coactive Training Institute. He lives in what I call T-Dot, Tirana, with wife and two young children. Shed Arama, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm so proud of this book for you. It's an awesome read. Uh, Speak Up Culture. Let's start there from a definition perspective. So you refer to it as the environment in which people uh, both feel safe and worth it to basically share four key things. So mm-hmm. if I got this right, uh, share their ideas, their concerns, uh, their disagreements, and their mistakes. Yes. So I like that. Let's let's get you to explain why those four are so important to a speak-up culture. Great. Well, first and foremost, I should speak up and say I really have to shorten that bio, but thank you for that uh, <laughs> wonderful introduction, Dan, and such a joy and treat to be with you, my friend. Um, so yeah, uh, so when I first started writing this book, the the content evolved and grew, which was really nice, and I'm sure you've mm-hmm. had this experience before. So when I first started writing the book, I thought I was just rebranding psychological safety and psychological safety very much in the zeitgeist now, very well-known work. Um, it's been around for for decades, but very much put on the map by a couple sort of key events. One was Amy C. Edmondson's key study and, and books, uh, as well, the Google Aristotle study oh, yeah. that found that psychological safety was the number one determinant of a uh, sustaining, high-performing, high high-achieving team. Um, the issue I had with psychological safety, though I love the body of work and I'm so grateful in, in particular for Amy Edmondson's work on it, is I feel like we're putting a white lab coat on something very human. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, th- this emotional experience of do you feel that it's safe to take interpersonal risk? And so at first I did a good old Zig Ziglar, people don't buy drills, they buy holes. And I'm like, okay, the drill is psychological safety. And what you get from psychological safety is a speak up culture. And I think I'm half right on that because one piece and the the framework which you saw in the book is, is it safe to mm. speak up and is it worth it? 
and we ask ourselves these these questions and do that voice calculus in our head is it psychologically safe and is it worth it our our perception of impact is me taking a risk because it always is a risk to speak up it is never without fear but mm -hmm. it's the work of leadership to create less fear not fearlessness that is an idealized notion that doesn't exist and quite frankly fearlessness is dangerous mm. um fearlessness will actually get you killed because fear is a, is a risk modulator and so it's those two pieces of is it safe is it worth it um and then uh, speaking up with ideas which make things better um concerns whether they're uh, unpopular or even personal mm -hmm. uh, like i'm struggling you know in my relationship out of work it's affecting my 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 work uh, disagreements, especially with senior leaders, and admitting mistake, um, believing it will lead to improvement and not punishment. Um, and you know, speaking up is good good for the firm and it's good for for the health of the organization and the health of employees. So, Shad, do do you need one before the other? Like, isn't it equation? So, do you need safety mm -hmm. for it to be worth it, or can it be worth it and unsafe, or maybe not as safe, and then it becomes safe because you've made it worth it? If you dot the i and cross the t, if you know who's on first, okay. So, <laughs> you don't need both, but you ideally have both. So, okay. if you look at the at the quadrant, so the upper right. If, if, if you have these two axes, safety, impact, if it's both high safety, high impact, that's great, right? Now it's a perception. So you and I could report into the same leader. I could say, Dan, what an amazing leader. They make me feel so safe and that my, my voice and opinion matters. And you're like, do we work for the same leader? Like, I don't feel that way. And we're both right. So we, we can't just label, you know, leader, team, culture, boom, speak up culture. Everyone should be able to feel that it's worth it and safe to speak up here. That's just not how it works because it's doubly a perception. But my hope is that when leaders understand these ideas, they can work better at creating uh, more safety and that it's worth that risk to to speak up. So that upper right quadrant is where, where we want to be, right? The bottom left quadrant, which is an unhappy marriage of fear and apathy, and mm -hmm. I've been there, I've seen others there, it's no fun. Maybe others out there listening are there right now. It's awful, right? We don't speak up because it doesn't feel that, it, that we don't feel it's safe, nor is it worth it. Like, why put ourselves in that undue risk, stress, pressure, danger? Like, nah, you know, and that's where we get quiet quitting. That's where we get resignation. And do we blame people? No, it's it's a likely a toxic, deleterious culture in that bottom left quadrant. The other two quadrants are really interesting. So high safety, but low impact, mm -hmm. which due to either bureaucracy, systemic issues, a change in habit that's simply too hard, we might feel safe to speak up. We just don't believe it will lead to any meaningful change. So let's say, you know, I know that you're having a piece of chocolate cake every night and I'm like... Dan, probably not that great for your health or that knee that you're rehabbing or whatever it might be. I'm like, maybe you should stop. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I just really like the chocolate cake, right? I don't have faith that that my speaking up is going to change any meaningful behavior. I might still speak up, but will I continue to? Probably not in the long term. Mm -hmm. The really interesting one, and this is often where you find courageous leadership or whistleblowing, is where there's low safety but high impact. This is where Ed Pearson, the well-known engineer, senior engineer uh, at Boeing, found himself when he was on the production line of the 737 MAX, and he went, this is not safe. 
like we're 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 missing you know critical pieces vendors are delayed like this is not going to be a safe plane this is not how you make a a plane and though he did not feel safe he spoke up at personal risk to his job his reputation his relationships but he did it because he felt closely tied to the stakes of literally life and death now um Speak up culture matters regardless of if you're in a life and death industry like aerospace, military, law enforcement, healthcare. Um, we know that the impact of our boss has more of an impact on our health than that of our relationship with our family doctor or a therapist if we have one. And it's at par in our, with our relationship with our spouse. So whether or not you're in a life or death line of work, if you are in a role of leadership, you have a life feeding or life depleting impact on the human beings around you. Mm. Um, and so it, it isn't a plus plus. You still might have people speak up. It's, and that really interesting one is low safety, um, but high impact where the stakes are are high and matter. Well, I do like chocolate cake, by the way. But that being said, maybe not every night. Uh, no. You you kind of brought up really, it segues nicely to sort of um, some of the factors that are getting in the way of a speak up culture in the book, you bring up a whole array from uh, apathy to gaslighting to fear, of course, to toxic positivity. Uh, these are some of the finest disengagement factors on the planet that you've uh, scribed in the tomb of yours, my friend. So tell me a bit about those and perhaps others and why these things are getting in the way and, and what we really should be doing about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is most leaders are unaware. Like you may be creating a condition where your people don't feel that it's safe and worth it to to speak up. It's not your intention and you have no idea. I like to say that as a leader, your whisper is a shout and your tiptoes are are stomps, stomps. right? And so there are there is overt psychological danger, which is often when you have insecure leaders who uh, might be narcissistic or... Um, simply aren't secure in their own ability to lead. And unfortunately, instead of looking in the mirror and growing them, themselves and blooming to take language from 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 you, um, uh, they press on and take it out on their people. Um, but I, I think, you know, first and foremost, there's, there's a huge population of leaders who, A, we don't adequately define what we mean by the term leadership. <laughs> and look no further than the fact that we need a term called servant leadership. I'm pretty sure <laughs> servant leadership is synonymous with what leadership should be. Leadership is not a title. Leadership is a behavior. And it's a behavior to put the needs of an organization and people above your own. There's no uh, leadership without selflessness or or sacrifice, right? Leaders behave in ways that we would follow them. And the leaders that we follow are more empathetic, more compassionate, um, have an ability to make uh, uh, decisions, but own the impact of, the, of those decisions. If they don't go well, they take accountability. If it does go well, they give credit away. Leaders are authentic, right? Mm. Um, so leadership is more from the side of behavior. But yes, there there are some conditions in which people feel that it's not safe nor worth it to speak up. The most extreme um, is gaslighting in which a leader literally denies the human experience of another, either through a straight up lie, coercion, manipulation. I think there's one more. Um, but yeah, I mean, gaslighting is like, I feel really sad. It's like, no, you don't. It's like, uh, okay, I didn't know my feelings were up for debate. Like, that's one thing we can't debate. If you're like, I feel sad, I have to believe you. 
and I have an opportunity to get curious about what's going on and support you, right? Um, and toxic positivity is that a little bit more subtle, you know, second cousin of of gaslighting in which we can only talk about the future and we can only talk about good things, um, which denies us of a human experience to talk about anxiety, uncertainty, um, you know, issues with what's going on in society right now. And for any leaders who say, hey, leave all of that out you know, away from work, that's just not responsible, that's antiquated, nor is it realistic, because you now have a percentage of your population showing up uh, to work from home. So of course, what's going on at their home and outside of it is going to impact how they show up at work. Now, no bike is a successful bike unless there's uh, two wheels and a chain and a crank. And you do such a good job with that metaphor and play here by uh, having a wheel that is kind of looking introspectively at yourself, the individual and sort of your approach as a leader of self and leading others, but then the organizational culture side as well. And it's just uh, the speak up culture that you you speak of, uh, to pun intended there, is actually this uh, connection, right, between the two wheels. And, and thus, I think the book is like a crank. It's like it's an engine of some sort. You write, yeah. uh, to kind of further my point, you write in the book, as you think about the leader you want to be, and the kind of organization you want to contribute to, examine the gaps between what you say and what you do. Do your decisions and behaviors align with your desired identity and values? That was such a powerful couple lines there for me when I read it, because it's it's that point of connecting the you to the they or the us, right? Whether that's organization or team. So how important is it for you to kind of, uh, Stephen, to kind of sort out your you, uh, in addition to having to work within, and if you're a leader, create the us of yeah. that speak up culture. So I think there's a there's a, a a few things going on here. So you know there there's no mistake, Dan, that every single leadership development program that I've heard of, <laughs> participated in, or facilitated in uh, has all started with a module on leading self. I like, did like that there, when 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 you brought that up in the book. I'm like, oh, spot on, Chad. <laughs> but like, duh, like you know, leadership isn't about catching more fish. It's about teaching others how to catch fish in their own right and in their own way, mm. right? L leadership is, isn't is about you could be the next me. It's you're the next you and let me do what I can to help you figure out what are your strengths and limitations? What's your instrument? How can you play it to the best of your ability so that you can then do that for other people? And so I think we as individuals have the opportunity and as leaders, the obligation to figure out what is your own instrument? Um, uh, how can you play it at your best? How can you harmonize well with others? Because no one uh, in our species is, is remarkable on their own. It takes team, right? And then you get to do some really fun, hard work of looking in the mirror. What's the gap between what I say and what I do? You know, it, there are too many organizations out there, and I've seen this, where they stand for social good on the outside, but have yeah. toxic, deleterious cultures on on the inside. Like, yeah. no, we, we can't do that. Um, or you can, it's just simply disingenuous. And there's a gap between what you say and what you do, which is a gap in your integrity and a gap in your authenticity. And so... You know, my experience of the greatest leaders is there. there is humility, right? There mm -hmm. is a willingness to look at oneself and say, what's not right here? How can we get better? Because that work is never done. Um, and yeah, I mean, the thing I love about humility and why I'm so attracted to it 
is there's a fallibility and an openness to always getting better and an openness to say, hmm, what's my part here? You know, notwithstanding, how can I empower others to take, you know, ownership of their part as well? Um, you know, but we we can be both humble and confident at the same time. We cannot be humble and arrogant at the same time. Doesn't exist. So I'm I'm into humility and I'm into to, to confidence and the interplay of those. Um, so there definitely is a what's my instrument? How can I fine tune it, develop it, harmonize it, and then how can I help others do that same work in their own right so that they do that work for others as well? Right. Our our friend Kendraetti calls it leader breeder, right? How can yeah. you breed more leaders? Yeah. Well, if, 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 there's so many um, good nuggets in the book that almost espouse ironies. And so one of them, of course, is you you make point of my door is always open um, from a leader perspective yet. So let's let's unpack that for a bit. When, when you say in the book, my door is always open, you're actually making the point, well, it better be <laughs> well, I mean, and sometimes it makes sense for your door to be freaking closed because you yeah. got to get something done. Yeah. E- either got to get something done or there's a confidential private matter that you have to deal with with respect and intact. You know, saying my door is always open is quite passive because mm. it assumes that people feel uh, safe enough that it's worth it and that they have the confidence and capability to knock on the door. And then when they do, how do you re- how do you respond? Right now, further where did all the office doors go anyway with a open <laughs> open office spaces and of course more and more people working hybrid and from home and so this sort of passive notion of my door is always open cool uh, good luck with your air ventilation you know how about i'm actively going out to check on the people on my team how are you doing what do you need how's your mother i know she was sick last week or had a back surgery whatever it might be um I think, you know, uh, having a, a an open door policy is kind of bare minimum. I think we need more active solicitation of feedback, active solicitation of how are people doing? Do they have too much on their plate? Not enough. Are they doing the right things? How are they? You know, mm-hmm. the work of leaders is to check on your people and support them to the best of your ability. And I guess it goes back to your framework, right? If they don't feel safe or it's worth it to proactively reach out, even if, quote, the door is open, or if they say the door is open and they'd feel unsafe and thus it's not worth it, I mean, it sort of backs your argument. Well, and for a leader to say, why didn't you tell me? Or why didn't you let me know? My door was always open. My, you know, on my Slack, didn't you see the the green dot? That's on you. It's like, no, like, what are the conditions you're creating, leader, to make it safe and worth it for people to come to you and share ideas as well as hard and, and, and bad news as well. Um, right. As soon as we punish people for for sharing hard news or, or bad news, all of a sudden hard and bad news just disappears. A couple of uh, other phrases come up in the book a few times. One is, which I really, really enjoyed, um, you've upgraded the golden rule to the platinum rule where yes. uh, treating others as we want to be treated is the gold standard versus treating others the way wish they wish to be treated, sorry, is the platinum. So why is this distinction necessary in your mind for a speak-up culture to thrive? Yes, and there is a great book out there, The Platinum Rule. I believe it's by um, Michael O'Connor and mm-hmm. Tony Alessandra. Um, so the, the golden rule is treat others the way you wish to be treated. 
which mm-hmm. while that might be fine for kindergarten, that isn't good for adulthood, right? Because it lacks empathy, right? If I go around treating people the way I wish to be treated, so my number one appreciation, uh, my number one appreciation language is words of affirmation, but my wife is quality time, yeah. right? So if I just keep going, oh, you're so amazing, you're so wonderful, and I keep affirming her, she's like, I just want to sit on the couch and hang out or go for a walk or go for a dinner. You don't need to tell me how how great I am. Show me through quality time. So the work of, of leadership and really the work that we all have the opportunity to do is platinum rule, which is treat others the way they wish to be treated, which takes empathy and compassion, which takes uh, relationship building. Mm-hmm. So a fun little story of this, one of my uh, one-on-one coaching clients uh, was CIO at a design firm, came in new to the job, was about six weeks into the job. Um, His chief of staff was working really hard, um, uh, going above and beyond. And he said, I'm going to do something nice for her. I'm going to get her flowers. And I asked him, do you know if she likes flowers? And he goes, no. I'm like, well, do you know someone who would know if she likes flowers? He goes, yeah. I'm like, ask them, right? When it comes to giving and receiving feedback, when it comes to rewards and recognition, like, take the time to figure out what your people's preferences are. And there's tons of tools to help with this. One of which is appreciation languages at work or love languages Mm. um, is a great tool to figure out how can you best um, have hard conversations and wonderful conversations and rewards and, and recognition in ways that people will most appreciate themselves. Love it. Well, uh, let's just say that I think I might buy you a a bag of cucumbers because also <laughs> several times throughout the book, you point out about cucumbers, pickle brine, and pickles and how it's yeah. inevitable 10 times out of 10. And I think you even self-deprecating kid that every time you speak or coach or consult, this, this comes up. That 10 times out of 10, cucumber in brine turns to pickles. Get over it. So why is that metaphor so important, not just in the book, but your work? And it's relationship to something else that's prevalent throughout your writing. And that's the say-do gap. Yeah. So I think I might go into the pickle business, Dan. I think I actually sure. I have been in the pickle business for for many years. So um, I mean, there's chemistry and an equation that works. That if you take a cucumber, you put it into pickle brine ten times out of ten, you get a pickle. Um, but this th- this metaphor is a metaphor for culture, because so often people struggle and we blame the pickle without examining the brine. We can take a world-class cucumber, put it in some awful pickle brine, and you, my friend, have an awful pickle that should never have been made. And we can't blame the cucumber. We blame the brine. What's the environment? What's the culture that leaders have proliferated, right? Because in our cultures, we get the behavior we reward, and we get the behavior that we tolerate. Toleration is a form of reward. So that high performer who's a jerk, if you keep them on, that's a message of the behavior that's rewarded here, right? Yeah. You can be a jerk and walk on people's backs so long as you hit your hit your numbers. Good luck with a healthy culture then. Um, and we know that those people who are drivers um, are deleterious and toxic to it to a culture. Um, similarly, you can take an, an an average or pretty mediocre or not even that great of a cucumber, put it in world class pickle brine, and cultivate it and foster it, and you have a great pickle which means the environment matters a lot more than the, than the cucumber. And there's research and studies and cases to back this, that the environment has a greater impact on the pickle <laughs> um, than the cucumber itself. 
So I'll strip back the metaphor here that so often when we have people who are underperforming, we blame the people without examining the culture, without examining the behaviors of, of their leaders, or even examining, are they in the right role? Like mm -hmm. how many times have you looked at someone and you're like, they're really underperforming. It's like, yeah, because you have them in an implementation role and they're a strategic thinker. Like give them a little bit more strategy work and they'll flourish or vice versa, whatever it might be. Um, so yes, our, our brine, our pickle brine is a metaphor for the cultures that we proliferate. Uh, quick answer, favorite pickle, Shed? Um, <laughs> my grandmother's, my, my late grandmother's pickles, they were new dills. Uh, um, they were, they're delicious, crunchy, just right. Um, yeah. Well, um, the FBI might have to uh, seek an answer, a better answer than that. You, I've not heard of FBI before in the way in which that you present it uh, from the work of Bob Chapman. So FBI standing for feeling, behavior, and impact. Tell me a bit about that model of feedback, how you first learned about it, and how and why it's incorporated in the book for a speak-up culture. Yeah, I should have wear my Ghostbusters shirt or my FBI shirt for, for this one. So yes, um, awesome, Dan. So um, I first learned of the FBI model from the Chapman uh um, and co-leadership institute. This is Bob Chapman's mm -hmm. um, uh, leadership development company. They're an amazing company. The book, Everybody Matters, highly recommend. Uh, and Bob is a great CEO and leader. And they have a course that they put on first and foremost for internal employees. And they're a good old American manufacturing company. And they teach their people to be better leaders by being better listeners. Um, and how to engage and have, you know, Kim Scott radical candor conversations. And one of the tools that they teach is the FBI. Mm -hmm. And I've toured and seen the factory floor, you know, in Phillips, Wisconsin, seeing the general manager of, of the plant in tears saying that he got through the hardest challenges of his family time because of the support he had at work. We walked around the office and he stopped Terry, who just had to put down his 13-year-old golden retriever. How mm -hmm. you doing, right? Like that level of intimacy and care. Because business isn't family, but business, I think, can be a community where people agree to support and grow together and support each other. So um, feedback is a great tool to help us to do that because feedback is uh, is a tool and an engine for for growth. It helps one another grow more relationship with oneself, more relationship with with each other, and grow in our work and grow as as human beings. So FBI is my favorite tool for effective feedback, which can be both constructive or positive. Mm -hmm. So it stands for feeling behavior impact, and it's the three ingredients of effective feedback. Um, you can change the 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 order up, but it's best when it has those three ingredients. What's good about it is it allows you to own your experience of another without pointing the finger or blaming them. And it invites them to take uh, ownership of their part as well. So I could do here, I'll do a real FBI for you. So Dan, yeah. I feel um, quite frankly, pretty jazzed up, energized, very grateful um, the fact that you've read the book before it came out cover to cover um, and that you're asking these questions that are so nuanced and detailed, like line by line in the concepts in, in the book. And the impact is I just want to do the best possible job for you and your audience because I'm so jazzed up by the research that you invested in this. So thank you, which is way freaking better than saying, hey, Dan, great job today. Right, which leaves you questioning, like, what did I do to earn that great job? Well, I'm telling you, 
you're a really good, good interviewer because you do your work, right? Mm. Keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sure your listeners and your other guests do as well. Way better than a one-liner of great job today, right? There's no re repeatable behavior there, right? Um, and we know research from, from Gallup that if we just go out of our way to tell someone their strengths and to keep doing it, their likelihood of active dis disengagement is 1% versus if you ignore them, it's 40% or only point out their weaknesses and areas to improve, it's 22% uh, um, likelihood of active disengagement. Uh, similarly, so I like to say that one-liners are fine for, for jokes, but not necessarily yeah. when it comes to getting feedback. So I could also say now I'm totally making this up now and this didn't happen, but you know, humor me, Dan, I could say, um, you're lazy. That's not going to go over so well. Or I could say, Hey, um, I really feel let down and frustrated when you were late to three client meetings last week. And the impact is, I'm really not sure I can trust you with what's on your plate right now. Are you okay? Like, this is not like you. What's going on? And you're like, oh, I, I didn't want to tell you, but, you know, I'm having trouble with my kid's health or whatever it might be. And I'm like, oh, or I have too much on my plate, you know, or I'm really tired or demotivated or whatever it might be. But you, the, the point of feedback is to start meaningful dialogue not to point fingers and say, work on that. It's to build empathy and figure out what's going on and how can we work together for you to, to own um, improving here, but for the leaders and the team to support you in that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, thank you. But being Canadian, I'll probably edit out all the nice things you said because we, <laughs> we don't know how to take feedback. But it's a really good, important, well, why I bring it up, to be honest, Shed, is because uh, it, it's such a, a, a revelatory tool to actually inculcate that culture of speaking up. And it's just very simple. I love your anecdote about the Wisconsin experience as well, because when you can combine uh, feelings with behavior with impact, I mean, that's like a trifecta of speaking up in that good attitude, gratitude way. And yeah. so I just wanted to thank you for uh, enlightening me and the, and the reader to something that's really important part of that speak up culture. Okay, two I questions. Really, I, two, I really two questions. hope you. Uh, I really hope you keep it in the episode because it's true. So carry on. <laughs> so I have two questions remaining, and the first one I want to ask Shed is the coda, or you know the the last chapter, I guess, best way to describe it. And you're you go you go very personal in a in a très fantastique way, uh, purposely using the word tray, because you tell Merci. such a story about sort of your childhood and what happened and how you overcame something. But it really was an example, exemplary example of speaking up. Mm. So just, I was wondering if you could just share a little bit, right, on yeah. what it meant to you. Absolutely. So, you know, in the last chapter, I really highlight why I wrote this book. And I wrote this book for two reasons. So one, I grew up with a, with a stutter, a speech impediment. I still have a stutter. I've learned how to work with it. Thank you to the Speech and Stuttering Institute for, for that and that help. Um, I also married a speech language pathologist, good choice, more so for my kids uh, and nieces and nephews than for me personally. Um, well, still, I get some 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 good uh, tips and, and tidbits. So, but I, I grew up, Dan, um, not knowing or feeling safe, comfortable, uh, or that it was worth it to take the risk and use my voice mm. for fear of embarrassment, humiliation. So I know what it feels like to be voiceless. Um, and sort of this pentultimate sort of moment 
um, uh, or this climax of it was in grade six. I first knew I had an issue in, in, in grade two. We tried to deal with it. The therapy and the intervention didn't really work. Um, but it was in grade six in French class where I couldn't say the word très in, in French. Now, anyone who speaks French or is Canadian or has learned French, très is like the third freaking word you learn in the language. And it's a hard word. And and that that harsh sounding, the TR um, at the beginning of that word, it was like a, a finger trap. And the harder I tried to pull my fingers out, the 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 more the word was stuck at the tip of my tongue. My teacher, I guess, wasn't aware because I wasn't too public about it that I had a stutter and it wasn't that bad, but it was definitely there. Mm-hmm. Um, she skipped over me. I totally felt humiliated. I went home that night and said, you know, to my mom, let's let's deal with this just because I knew it was going to get in the way of my future. Um, unfortunately, you know, I went to speech therapy. I figured out some 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 strategies to to work with it and improve and just take those modest, reasonable risks and tests to put myself out there and gain a bit more confidence speaking publicly. Mm-hmm. And the irony is we both speak publicly now and I still have this thing called a stutter, but I've learned to work with it. And so, you know, that experience of knowing what it feels like to be voiceless, as well as seeing in my 15 year and counting career of seeing some teams, leaders, organizations that have a speak up culture, and it's marvelous. And some teams, leaders and organizations who either had one and lost it or just don't have one. And it's horrible. Um, it's horrible for the results of the firm and it's horrible for the health and well-being of the people who are in that culture. And so I want to create, I want to be a, a contributor to helping to create a world where more leaders and teams have safe uh, and healthy speak-up cultures because I, I want to work in those. I want you to work in those. I want our kids and their kids to work in those because I, I've worked for for leaders that have made my life worse and I, I don't want that. It's not good for for you, for me, for anyone. Well, you talk about uh, humility and being humble. Uh, ending the book with a story like that sort of characterizes you as indeed um, the words that you preach are in fact what you're made of from a DNA perspective. So uh, thank, thank you, you for that. So elevator pitch, uh, speak up culture is dot, dot, dot. Speak Up Culture is a book for leaders who care to put their people and purpose first. And it's about leaders who wish to examine how their behavior in either enables or disables their people from sharing what they think and what they feel. Amazing. Shed, it's a glorious book. I really uh, appreciated you giving that to me so in advance so we could do this. And I can't wait for it to release and for the masses to read it. Where can we find out more about Speak Up Culture and the glorious Shed? Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, truly and sincerely, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And we're here and we did it. So thank you. And again, thank you for reading the book. Um, I, at present, am the only Stephen Shedletsky in the entire human race. Um, that's one of the benefits of having a weird Polish last name. So all you handfuls of Shedletskys out there, please be mindful of the first names that you choose for your children. Uh, but if you Google Stephen Shedletsky, you can find me in all the places. I'm quite active on LinkedIn uh, and Shed Inspires on other uh, other social platforms. And you can learn more about the book and pre-order at speakupculture.com. Amazing. Inspiring doesn't even begin to describe what you're bringing to this corporate management leadership world, Chad. Thanks so much for this. Um, Of course, there's only one Daniel Pontifrac as well, but uh, one of my daughters, Claire, is very annoyed that she found another Claire Pontifrac. So I get exactly 
what you mean. No more Claire or Daniels out there. And no more Steven Shedletsky. There's only one Shed. <laughs> Everyone, thanks, Shed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifract, today, and the one and the only Stephen Shedlesky. Shed in the house, in the shed. And with that, we'll see you on another episode. Thanks, all. Thanks, all.